Hey guys, it's your boy Sir Caesars, and this is episode 79 of the Caesars Show. Just want to thank you guys for constantly following me, spreading the love. I appreciate that. And if you are new to the show, make sure to subscribe on all platforms. I'm available damn near everywhere. So before I get into today's hottest topics with episode 79, I want to rehash with you guys episode 78. So on episode 78 of the Caesars show, it was me and my brother, D-Sharp, and we discussed the hottest topics in the NBA, which were episode 5 and 6 of Jordan Documentary, David Blatt trying to take shots at LeBron James, and then also Isaiah Thomas comments on players today dominating or just being a part of his generation as well, too, in that era. So hope you guys enjoyed that last episode. If you haven't checked it out, definitely check that out. And, uh, you know, we're going to get started with, with today's episode. So today, my boy Traded XXIV returns, my co-host. So let's get straight to it. We are back with greatness. No other than Trade XXIV, <laughs> the co-host. So what it do, baby? What's popping? What's good? You already know I'm supposed to just sound like a little baby. You already know. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's, it's good to be in the spot, as always, which is the same spot I've kind of been in. Um, it, it was it was dope. Uh, Mother's Day weekend. That's like my favorite holiday, man, because so many influential women, definitely influential black women that have fed, raised me, influenced me, guided me. So, man, Mother's Day is one of my favorite holidays. I love giving back to the mothers. Were you able to spend time with your mother? Yes, yes. I people are like, what you do for your mom? I went down there. My grandmother stays with us, so we were just t- kicking it, chilling, you know, helping out with some stuff around the house. And I just like begged her to uh, cook me some fish, fry me some fish. <laughs> oh, I think <laughs> I saw. Did you post it on your story? Uh, I either put that or my man's made some like collard greens. So he's been like, oh yeah, I saw the I saw I saw the collard greens. I saw the yeah. collard greens. My man's made some collard greens, man. Even in the house, chefing it up. Shout out, so man, he's. He's becoming way too domesticated. We got to get out of this quarantine soon because he's losing his mind. So he's like taking up the chef mantle. But yeah, my mom cooked some some fish, man. Oh my gosh. Like something about when your mom cooks something, it don't matter how simple it is. It goes crazy. So I enjoyed being home. I'll probably head back sometime this week, you know, while we ain't got too much stuff to do. So yeah. How about nah, you? I feel that. I feel that. Um, well, you already know my mom's in Orlando, so... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just FaceTime with her, called her, texted her, made sure I had a post and whatnot. Something's yeah. on the way for her as well, too. So that should be exciting. But she kind of blessed, too. So last week, Thursday night, she um, overnight um, shipped uh, some Liberian food to us. So I, ha- I have a lot of food in the archives right now in the freezer. So I'm pretty excited. So that was hey. that was a, that was a, that was an early little Christmas gift. So shout out to That's moms. Love. But yeah, just this week on Mother's Day, you know what I'm saying? Shout out to all the mothers and, and single mothers who have put up with all of our BS throughout the years and, mm-hmm. and just propelled us to be great men and women as well, too. So hopefully we can carry that on and and always continue to inspire people as well, too. So uh, of I definitely want to show some love to them as well, too. But you ready to get into today's hottest topics? Oh, let's do it. Hey. All right, all right, all right. So... Episode 7 and episode 8 of the Jordan documentary aired last night. Um, so hopefully most of you guys have seen it. I hope 
I know most of you guys have seen it as well too. That's the only thing that damn near watch unless you're doing some watching some reruns and whatnot. But <laughs> we'll break down episode seven. Um, then after that, we'll break down episode eight, and then we'll get into the miscellaneous. So with episode seven, um, it started off with the pre-playoffs, April twenty first, nineteen ninety eight, and basically the um, GM Jerry Krause, they were like, hey, um, you know. Are you surprised that the team is still intact? Um, you know, given that you basically stated that Phil Jackson won't be coming back, um, and do you think there's like any backstab that backstabbing going on and on and whatnot behind the scenes? And he just got real mad in the beginning, and he was basically saying like, "Yo, these guys are professionals at the end of the day." So I'm kind of offended that you would even say that there's backstabbing going on and whatnot, which is kind of awkward, but. At the yep. end of the day, um, I agree with him as well, too. Like, obviously, he kind of prematurely broke up the the historic Bulls team and, and you know, Phil Jackson and all those other guys left as well, too. But at the end of the day, it is a business. And you got to be professional as well, too. And it seemed that although they didn't have a good form of chemistry with the players, as far as, like, the players coaching, the coaching staff um, and the GM, they still went about it, you know, in the right way as well, too. So wanted to bring that up as well. But after that, it was a 1998 Eastern Conference round one versus the Nets. And everyone was basically saying that this was going to be um, a sweep. And basically they were saying to lose the game. Michael Jordan said to lose the game, the team would have to fall asleep, basically. Um, yeah. But Jordan played great. Um, he played real, real good uh, against the Nets. I think they kind of gave him a scare a little bit, but he ended up winning. And uh, they basically said, let me see here, that in the playoffs, um, what Jordan loved about the playoffs the most was that although that, you know, the regular season, the regular season, kind of like what LeBron's been saying as well too, the playoffs is when it matters the most. This is this is when the best teams of the um, of the best teams, the creme de la creme, all come together for one mm-hmm. common goal to win that championship as well, too. So I kind of felt like after he won um, the champ, that one championship, I just felt like he, you could really tell he was, emo- after he three-peated that first time, you could really tell he was emotionally and physically drained as well, too. Um, you know, just going to three straight finals appearances as well um, kind of sucked as well, too. But after that, uh, they said in June, June, um, the 93 Bulls beat the Suns 4-2. to two. So basically, like I said, they three-peated. Um, and basically, they were saying that they kind of knew that he was edging towards the retire because they said the previous year with the 92 Olympic Dream Team, one of Jordan's assistants or whatever basically told him that, like, yo, like, after I win this championship or at least try to compete, like, I'm going to be exhausted. I'm going to be pretty much tired. So people kind of knew beforehand, but it kind of it was kind of shocking. Like I said, he went through three straight finals appearances. And one thing that really sucked was his father, um, yeah. which which got to me a lot as well, too. So uh, they're basically saying on July 23rd, 1993, he was supposed to get picked up um, and, his, and Michael Jordan, his personal assistant, personal assistant, his name was George, went to go pick him up. And basically, he was MIA, so they figured he was probably with his friends, you know, just arriving a little bit late. And basically, they, they came out with a report, and he was missing for about three weeks. And basically, yeah. a car was found, um, basically um, hidden in Fayetteville as well, too. Um, and then they said, a couple of weeks later, August 13th, the body was found in the creek. 
It was pulled off the road, and they assumed that he went to take a nap, and he awakened um, and basically, you know, just got shot. Um, so basically, two men were charged for the murder, um, and it and it kind of it kind of really changed the perspective of MJ. Like I said, that that more than likely was why he retired early as well too. Um, and I remember when he was at the funeral, one thing he said was his death or his father rather always taught him that you basically have to always take a negative and turn it into a positive. And I kind of helped him get through the tough times as well too. But it was kind of some bullshit how, and I'm happy social media wasn't a huge thing. This, um, I mean, social media wasn't a huge thing back then, but it's kind of some bullshit how it seems like the media, whenever you're at your pinnacle, whenever you're trying to be great, they always want to try to try to add a, some sort of stain to your legacy. So they were trying mm-hmm. to come up with different theories, and they were basically saying, like, yo, we know Jordan had a gambling problem, so maybe gambling is linked to his dad's death. Maybe he owed a debt or something like that. That's why his dad died. Like, no, like, sometimes things just happen. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. it's out of your control. Now, I kind of think that Michael Jordan's dad was very well known since he was always in the scene, but I, th- I don't think gambling had anything to do with it. I really think that, you know, he may have pulled over, got tired, took a nap, and people were aware of who he was, and they basically probably tried to rob him or something like that, which was unfortunate as well, too. But um, how do you feel about, you know, his dad, you know, passing away, um, what the media portray with him, and, you know, just, you know, father, how father figures are so important um, in people's life. Even if you don't have a father figure, some some form of a father figure should be important. Uh, I think for Jordan, it was like it was like his, his his rock in a lot of ways. I mean, we don't get. I mean, I guess we know from the stories, just like a peek into his like personal life. But even still, there's like a lot of like stuff that's shadowed in mystery. And you know, somebody that's ultra competitive. That I was watching the docs, and what was super evident is that Jordan never wanted to see like let people like know he bled. You know what I'm saying? Like. Everybody was like, yo, that's black Jesus. That's it was the God complex, the God mentality. And not that Jordan maybe have had it, but when it came to competitiveness, he had that. So when you see, you know, what might be a driving force in his life, what might be his backbone, a rock, that some some type of thing that kind of connects him to to human connectivity and achievements and oh well you know i see him do all the spectacular things but you know this guy has a father you know it could be the, the greatest whatever in the world but this dude has a father and that connects him to all of us even on the basketball court we know he, we can't touch him at all so seeing that and um you kind of like you know having an open wound as far as the media attacked with it like at first it was like oh his father's missing Oh, then it came to like his gambling debts, which I have my theories and stuff on everything coming to Chicago and him retiring for a short period of time. But let's let's be clear, he was emotionally exhausted. That was the tipping point. That was the cherry on top. Like, yo, like imagine going back to back to back and one of the best sports league in the world. And it's not easy because one, you're uh, he was late 20s at that point. He was late 20s because he took that year and a half off for basketball, but he was approaching 30. And you know, your body peaks around 20. Yeah, so six, I think they say you're prime from you know. like 28 to like 33 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Your, your body's primed right there. So he's getting up there, but he's been playing at top of the top in basketball, being one of the most athletic sports you can play. Like he, 
he was done. So so his father going out was already an emotional thing. And then he probably very much associated his father with winning, with basketball, with greatness. You know what I'm saying? Like he from a child and, and the first that, that pick of him, we had his first was crying with the first uh, trophy and his father was right there holding him too. Like he probably associated championships in basketball with his father. So spe- speaking just to that, it's like, yo, like when you have somebody that's that great, that influential has been there in your life, you associate with them with so many things and it probably feels super empty. And I know it feels empty, you know, it, to, to make it even a smaller thing. So we'll go back to fathers, but follow me here. It's like, you know, you, you have a girl you used to do like that one thing with your girl. You used to go to that one restaurant with your girl and then y'all not together no more. You know what I'm saying? And you, you can't even go to the restaurant. You can't even eat the same stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, yo, what the heck? So equate that and then take it leaps and bounds and multiply it by 10. Uh, with his father, he was probably done with everything with everything on top of media following him around all the time we saw in the earlier doc earlier docs he was like yo like i can't even be myself he's like you don't want this life you don't want to be me you know what i'm saying you like people love seeing me but they don't want to be me so so all of that probably came to a head and it, it's, it's very unfortunate how his father had to die through weeks of searching for him of him you know being uneasy they kind of probably kind of knew what happened after a while but you know through weeks through weeks went by and it, and then to all these different areas, people talking on your name and, and talking on your character and how that would be anything you had to do with your fi- father meeting his untimely demise is just, you know, it's sick. So, um, you know, prayers to anybody that has lost a loved one or a father figure, but those are really rocks in your lives. Definitely us coming from a community where the family nucleus is not, doesn't always look like that, you know? It doesn't always look like that. So when you do have that, those people in your life, or somebody that has been there from your birth on is super special. It's super special. So um, I think the media mismanaged it. If you did have theories and stuff like that, why would you put it out then? But I mean, I guess, you know, red cells, you know, if it, re- if it bleeds, it reads. So um, that's my, my take on that. No, nah, that was that was fire. I enjoyed that. I felt like a little kid just like, this is a class game lecture. <laughs> that was good, man. Um, but yeah, so he, he shortly retired after. Um, and it seems like with all this scrutiny, you know, that came with everything, it's kind of like they only really appreciate you when you're gone as well, too. So it's a shame yeah. that it took for him to it, it, it's a shame that it took his father's death for people to appreciate him even more as well, too. So mm-hmm. um, he said that, you know, once he once he uh, retired, uh, I remember when he gave that press conference as well, too. They said it basically felt like damn near the last supper <laughs> when he was up there yeah, with everybody yeah, as well too. But he said he was at he was at peace because like you said, what you harped on, like he associated everything with his father. I think he was one of the mm-hmm. first few people to only to to to, to three peat. I don't think Magic and, and Larry Bird did that. So he was like, I kinda did what I had to do. Like there's nothing really else to prove. Only only thing I gotta yeah. prove is just to add more stats to it if I want to get more championships to it as well too. So um, people try to come up with speculations saying, and I used to think about it too, that David Stern, because of the gambling, they basically told him to go on an 18-month hiatus and whatnot, but David Stern cleared the air and basically said no. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Like, why would your top-tier player who's bringing in damn near most of your revenue, why would he want to suspend it when he's a breadwinner? So that that didn't make any sense to me, and, and, and that was just kind of dumb. Do you want a pot? Do you want a pod pod or do you want to like, you know, you want to just, because I, I got a theory. So you, 
finish finish what you're saying and then mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give it that to you in, mm-hmm. in, in small annotated notes but go ahead yeah so um you know after that he ended up playing baseball uh for the chicago white Sox. um but i think he went to the minor leagues and i think the chicago white Sox had like a subdivision team which were the which was which was in birmingham alabama um so basically he played baseball growing up i think till about the age of 17 but he always enjoyed baseball. His dad was one of the first people to get him into it, but he gravitated towards basketball as well, too. So a lot of people are saying, like, yo, I don't really think you can do this because you've basically taken off almost 15 years without playing basketball from the from basically the year, from 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 being, like, 17 years old to 31 years old, you haven't played as well, too. Um, so yeah. I felt like baseball for him was he probably always told his father he was going to try to – be in baseball in some shape or form. So I think he did that um, for his father. And I also think that it helped him fill the void because like you said, he was already exhausted from basketball. So he wanted just to change the scenery as well too. But while he was playing Uh baseball, um, they said he he played pretty well, had a 13 game hitting streak. um, And I think he hit a .202 batting average. I don't really know what that means because I didn't play baseball um, as well too. And then after that, um, I guess while he was playing baseball, there was some form of a lockout or not a lockout, a, um, what's it called? A, uh, they had, they went on like a strike. I didn't really go too much in depth on what the strike was about, but that kind of ended Jordan's baseball, uh, career. And I think one yeah. day he happened to walk, um, or call Scott Burrell, one of his old, one of his old, uh, former teammates. And basically uh, Jordan was trying to get him to hang out, and then Scott Burrell was like, "Yo, just come to the gym. Like, let's just <laughs> let's, let's just go hoop." And then while they're driving to the gym, Scott Burrell's basically like, "You've been retired for about damn near eighteen months. I'll wash your ass right now." And I guess something just switched with him. So Jordan basically uh, showed up to practice for like two, three weeks stint, and then after that, he basically just said, "Yo, I'm about to come back." Um, so. <laughs> It was kind of crazy because they're all like the press was like, all right, like how how are we going to deliver this message to the to the general public? And they wrote a couple different type of way. They wrote in a couple different type of ways. And he was like, yo, like just give me the pen. I'm gonna write what I gotta write. And he was just on some gangster ass shit. And he was just like, I'm back, <laughs> which was yeah. so which was dope. so dope, which is so dope. But before we get into him coming back, tell me about your theory um, of what you think happened. Okay. All right, all right. So I was talking about this with my man, man Solich yesterday, because uh, we have—he's <laughs> been in the house way too much, so he's been watching alien documents, conspiracy theory stuff. But that's that's neither here nor there. But um, we won't get into because it's such a sensitive topic, so we won't get into his father thing. But we will get into the fact that Jordan was the ultimate competitor. If there is any. Uh, any, any any smudges to his resume, to his character, to his possibly moral compass, making him human uh, to the rest of the world that somebody can write about. It would be the gambling stuff, and it sucks because it's it it, it rivals what he does. You know, you always take a chance when you're playing a sport, and you're always being competitive. Now that has turned into somewhat, you know, it turned into his ultra aggressive competition and it, it, it branched off into gambling for Michael Jordan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we, how in the earlier episode, they were talking about, you know, before games and things, he was out on 
golf courses, you know, gambling with certain people. And he owed uh, somebody like a million, he had a million dollar debt or tab on somebody. Now, I'm always, when it comes to media and it comes to looking into stuff, I always say, all right, the surface is what they let you report. So if there's the truth, then there's, uh, there's one story, there's the next story, then there's the truth, right? It's what's reported on or what's told, what's reported on, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, all right? So it's like, all right, we can clear a $1,000 gambling debt. Go ahead. Say that Jordan's cool with us saying a $1,000, I mean, a, a million-dollar gambling debt. If you're a big-time gambler, Mike had plenty of money, which who knows, he might be worth, he might have been worth that, but maybe not had it to give. He might have gotten too deep with the wrong people and said, all right, they said, okay, a, a million dollars is what you can see on a documentary, but it could have been way further more than that. On top of that, Mike treated the league like he was a human playing against ants. All right. So and I'm not I'm not I'm not saying this this is the, the clear thing to what happened. All right. And I'm I'm, I'm gonna get off of this. I'm gonna wrap it up in one minute. One minute. No, go ahead. Uh, I'm not saying this is the clear thing to what happened, but imagine a, a a scenario where Mike was in his game line, but he was maybe betting stuff other games and you know with the big dogs and stuff like that like all right well i think western conference is gonna happen whatever like that i'll do my money for it or whatever like that so he's playing his game dominating the games that he's in but he's gambling and doing different stuff with the league game so i think david stern it probably came to a point where he was like yo people are slowly uncovering this we need to nip this in the butt for a pr thing so jordan like yo like i do not want to let you go i do not want to let you go but i need to do something on top of that Chicago. Baseball is the biggest, the biggest. They'd be like, oh, why is baseball so interesting? Because people bet on baseball all the time. It's big old money in baseball. And if I dare say so myself, I, there's, there was probably plenty of mob money in baseball. Plenty of mob money in baseball. And probably through some connections, somebody was like, yo, Michael owes some money. All right. Like, what are we going to do about that? They're like, yo, like, I don't know. He's like our star, whatever like that. They probably sat down at the table, like I said, it was the last time, but they probably all sat down at the table like, yo, look, you know, you owe this person money, all right? Um, I don't want to suspend you because that's bad for Lee. You are the face of basketball, but you also owe all these people obligations and stuff like that. And baseball was probably like, well, come play for us. Come play for us. And Michael probably was like, yo, look, I'm kind of getting emotionally drained from basketball. Well, come play for us for two years, you know? Say so you retire, come play for us for two years. Do you feel like going back to the league? Whatever. Because he kept saying, like, well, if I come back, maybe. So he probably knew there was a time limit on how long he was going to be in baseball. Right? So he's like, you know what? If I come back, I come back. So they they, they, they threw him out there. And what's a big thing is they uh, talked about it in episode seven of the documentary. He was selling out arenas in Alabama. There's no professional sports teams in Alabama. No major, like, he's selling out arenas in Alabama. That's so crazy. You know what I'm saying? Think about what that does for the league's revenue, for MLB. You're trying to spark it up. You know, I guess uh, Bo Jackson did it. But Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, dude. So I think it was it was a balance of a few things when he had to go. So And and then it officially, you know, his, his time was spent once they had a little lockout, the replacement player thing. And they were like, you know what? Oh, you know, you made us enough money, bro. Go, because the NBA needs you. So when you're a moneymaker, you're going to go where there's money to be made. And David Stern was probably like, look, you got him for a little bit. We'll cover the rest of his tab. Come let him play basketball again. It's going to be big. And I think it kind of went something like that. I don't know all the details, but that's my theory for that. 
and this is a theory. This is a theory, guys. This is just me reading way too much between the lines. Uh, I'm not trying to offend anybody. Not, you know, it's just that's what I, I you know. <laughs> so nah, that's my, my nah, two cents. That, that's interesting. I mean, I, th- th- that could have happened. Um, is it? Is it? It's not impossible. It's definitely very probable. But I mean. No one ever, no one really know. Uh, but that that's, yeah, that's yeah. an interesting spill on that because it kind of it kind of makes sense, you know. What I'm saying if you put them all together and link them all together, so that yeah. that was dope. Um, but Thank yeah, you, so that season while Jordan was playing um, baseball, that's when the Bulls, you know, try to see what life would be like without him. So that October '93 season without Jordan. Um, you know, Steve Kerr, Scottie Pippen, and other people basically said, like, Jordan won't there anymore. And with Jordan, like, although he was very great, he was kind of an asshole to be around as well, too. Like, obviously, he <laughs> demanded the most out of his teammates, but there comes a time when you should – if you're a leader, you should figure out a way to, on a one-on-one basis, figure out a way to best communicate with each individual player. And I felt like Jordan kind of generalized that um, and he was very demanding, okay. which worked because he ended up winning six championships and his teammates ended up winning multiple championships as well too. But they said when he left, there was kind of that sense of calmness. And that's when, when that's when Scottie Pippen actually eased into being that leader um, on and off the court as well too. And they said with Scottie, um, you know, he was softer. Um, he was easy to communicate with as well, too. And he was one of those guys when you were feeling some type of way, he would put his arm around you um, and you got, and, and they would talk it out. So they actually did great that year as well, too. Like I said, Scotty was one of the runner-ups for MVP. They won over 50 games as well, too. Um, that's when we got to see the emergence of Tony Kukoc, um, who finally came into the league as well, too. And, and they were on a roll. Um, and there was one thing that they mentioned that um, I think against the Knicks, in the, I don't know if it was the semis or the conference finals, but they were down 2-0 versus semis, the Knicks. Okay. Yeah, semis. They were down 2-0 versus the Knicks, and Phil Jackson noticed that, you know, during the regular season, Tony Kukoc, you know, had the high hand, hit a, hit a couple of game winners, which was crazy, and he was like, yo, we're about to drop mm-hmm. this play. We know you're about to get all the attention, Scotty, but let's give the ball to Tony Kukoc um, to try to see this game. And, you know, I think it's a combination of him finally being the guy and, you know, people in the media probably always follow him saying they probably in a way always kind of try to bring up Michael Jordan because he's not there anymore. So it's added pressure for him. He's kind of like, all right, since he's gone, I'm the guy now. So I want to take the last shot. So when Phil was like, yo, you're not taking the last shot. This plays is after Tony Kukoc. It was just wild how he just got mad and he sat on the bench and then they were basically like, yo, are you – are you with us or are you not? Like, what's good with you? And he was like, nah, I'm not with you. Yeah. So he literally almost jeopardized their series. I mean, they ended up losing the series, but it's crazy that Tony Kukoc ended up um, hitting that jump shot to, you know, win the game. And they eventually tied it, but then they eventually lost the series as well, too. But how do you feel about that whole situation? Because they said afterwards, you know, they say it was kind of unlike Scotty to do that based on his yeah. actions, you know, around the team for however many years in that season as well, too. But then they said one thing that kind of shifted everything was Bill Cartwright gave a speech on him quitting. And he's like, yo, Sky, like, this is kind of unlike you. And I think he, like, kind of shed a tear and whatnot. Um, and like I said, they ended up winning seven games. But uh, that was kind of crazy 
What were your thoughts on that whole situation with Scotty? Do you think he was right to kind of quit on his team for that for that small amount of time? Well, I okay, so I'm I'm giving I'm giving a lot of game right now. So we're <laughs> uh, here for all for of me. It. <laughs> yeah, 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 man. I'm I'm a I'm a this is this is this is the one. Um so this is the analogy. Uh I call it the analogy of the two parents for the two leaders. So I kind of formed this last night when I was watching it. And kind of when you like were going over the going over listen, 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 listen. listen. All right. So so think about it. Think about it. So we've all in our lives, uh either from a like uh, a leadership standpoint, and parents are leaders, so or or the coaches. So analogy of the two parents are the two leaders, right? So you have one that you get wreck, whatever like that, or even further along in your life, a boss. Um who and then you have another one who's also in the same position. So say option one A, right, is the one that's always on your back, right? Demanding stuff for you. Like, yo, we can't breathe. Like, yo, this is not really fun. Yo, like what's going on? Like they don't really connect with me like I want to be connected with. Then two, you have the softer, the the more, oh, like, you know, well, I got you. Come on. Like we'll we'll get better. We can do it. We can get it done. All right, cool. Believe in yourself, you know? Uh um you can do something wrong, you know, go ahead, pick it up. Let's do it. Let's do it again. You know, everything's going to be all right. One A, one B. Okay. Uh, and coming down the stretch, right? So this is in this scenario, we've seen with the Bulls that leader one A, the one that's always on your back, demanding stuff from you, that results, results, what's the end goal? The end goal is to win a championship, you know, or maybe what was the end goal in your life? The end goal was to, uh, you know, get good grades, get into college, get a great job, be disciplined, stand that there, weather, weather life within itself. And then two, so say, say one A leaves, all right? Yeah. Something happens, people break apart, whatever, and then boom. You get to the other person and then it's like, all right, let's go. I believe in you. I feel a lot more comfortable with you. Let's see what happens. And you're achieving with this person and you get to a certain point, like, We'll, we'll, we'll tie it back into the Scotty Pippa scenario. You'll get to a certain point, and you, they kind of crumble. Or the, the 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 thing. I don't think Scotty crumble. I think he let the ego in the moment get the best of him, and he was like, "No, I'm not doing this." Meanwhile, the whole thing, your whole angle for this team was, "All right, we're gonna do it together. I'm not gonna chastise you. We're gonna be together no matter what." Mm-hmm. And the time when he was supposed to be together no matter what with them, the pinnacle of that, he opted out of that. Right. And everybody has their moments, but he opted out of that. So they're looking at it like, yo, what the on top of that, Phil Jackson drops the play, Tony Kukos hits the shot, like he has been hitting game winning shots a lot of the season. He, he probably I think he said he hit like like maybe this wasn't a number. I don't know why this came to my head, but he hit like thirteen or so. Oh, three or four, three or four. Okay, yeah. sorry. So but he hit three or four and then boom. And then everybody's looking. So the deeper, deeper issue is all right, Scotty, you want to be the man, all right? You want to be the what? You want to be the star player. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you want to you be a man. And the man that just left was tyrannical. He was on everybody's ass, but he got it done. He never left in any scenario. And they knew he was the go-to guy. You, and, 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 it, comes, and it comes in like this, all right? So he's upset because he should be the go-to guy. That that's where the, the crossroad meets is like, yo, so I'll, Michael would have been a go-to guy. I should be the go-to guy. I should be taking a shot. Everybody knows that. But even then, you're like, all right, I'm out. Even to not be in the game, in the play, I'm out. 
it's like, all right, one, you're not the go-to guy, like the coach just said. Two, you're going to leave us when time is hard. So so maybe all the hard-ass stuff and all the hard, like, um, you know, getting on our back, picking on us, teasing us, really just digging us down into the dirt, mental uh, – just the mental toughness that Michael was trying to bring, maybe that was all worth it. We hated it, but maybe that was all worth it because Michael got it done. We realized we couldn't get it done with Scotty. And that's what the, the, the tale of the two leaders is. You know, it's like, yo, do I want a tyrannical that gets it done? Or do I want somebody that lays off and maybe, you know, I can push myself. Maybe there, there leaves some room there. But at the end of the day, everybody was all about the results. And we can, you know, I know we're going to get into the end of the episode, but if you look at it, everybody was like, yeah, I guess Michael was an asshole, you know, but, but you know, they were, I was like, it still meant something because we were winning, you know, winning cure is all. It still meant something. It was like, yo, well, yeah, it was hard on us, but I get it. You know, we, we couldn't have got through that with, without somebody like Michael there. So Scotty was between a rock and a hard place, but that's where they diverged a little bit. And it, and it was tough seeing it because we know what Scotty wanted to be, but Michael with his competitive nature, with his, the way he addressed his teammates, he got it done. Not saying that was always going to be the best way to do it, but he figured out a way to win six championships, being the leader and the, the shot caller of that team. Yeah, and he said, you know, winning has a price. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. going to result in the championships, but it does have a price at the end of the day. And although he pushed and pulled on his teammates and challenged them night in and night out at practices and whatnot, he feel like he, you know, earned the right for that. And, and you were yeah. right as well, too. It's kind of like Jordan was, you know, the main teacher that you had, and he got a little sick for a little bit. So the substitute teacher came in for a while. Pretty cool and whatnot, but you still don't get that 100% respect from him. Um, and you just yeah, don't get home for you like that. You don't really <laughs> learn nothing like that. So kind of makes sense as well, too. So episode eight started off uh, – so it always goes back back and forth, um, going between each individual season with the championships, and obviously it focuses on primarily the, 99, the 97, 98 season. So start off May 3rd, 1998, and it was the second round um, against the Hornets. So this is when DJ Armstrong, I guess who was a former point guard, <laughs> I, guess, I guess he got traded or he was a free agent. Um, he was a point guard uh, now for the Hornets, and he was yeah, feeling yeah. himself. You know, what I'm saying he said that he knew the system, um, and basically, I think I think the first game um, they kind of shocked the Chicago Bulls, and he got all in MJ's <laughs> face. And you know, MJ, he always finds a way to motivate himself. Sleeping giant, yeah, sleeping giant as well too. So. DJ Armstrong kind of had an out-of-body experience. Like I said, he knew the system and whatnot. They stole the W from him. And the whole, all the teammates on the horns, they were like, yeah, once we got in Jordan's face like that, we kind of knew that it was a wrong idea. Um, <laughs> and, and that was just crazy because they ended up coming back. Um, and I think they they were up 2-1. No, they, they, won the, they won game two. Then in game three, DJ mm-hmm. Armstrong – was only held to three points, which was crazy. Yeah. And I won the series 4-1. But one thing that kind of stuck up in my mind when someone going at Jordan's face or going at Jordan was in 1993, the Bullets were an up-and-coming team. And mm-hmm. basically, there was a guy named Brad Smith who 
no one really knew of, but they knew he had potential. He ended up scoring, I think, 37 points against Michael Jordan. And I think the Wizards, the Bullets at the time, ended up winning. And they happened to be playing each other on a back-to-back night. So after the W, Brad Smith goes up to MJ, and he's like, good game, MJ. <laughs> Jordan, <laughs> Jordan internalized all that. And he was just like, I'm going to guard him tomorrow night. And the same amount of points that he scored on us, 37 points, I'm going to match that in the first half. He didn't match it, but he scored 36 points in that half. Um, and it's just crazy Fair. how when you truly want to be great, you just always find ways to stay motivated. So um, it's just kind of crazy how you just he just always found kind of ways to reinvent himself, to re-motivate himself in different ways. Speak on that a little bit. Um, it's funny because what, what scenario was, what did we find out that he made it up? He made the uh, good game one up or he made the one about the, the Charlotte he made, up? He made the bullets, one, he made the bullets one up, the good game. Yeah, the good game up. And as, it was so funny because they talked about it so intensely. Like he just came up to MJ <laughs> and, you know, MJ went back and he, he was like, yo, why'd you do that? And, you know, it was so funny because this team was probably like, yo, why'd you do that to MJ? And then he was probably like, yo, I didn't do it. And then, and then the next night, boom, dude drops 37 points on him. Um, I think it's something we can really take away. I, being, you know, in the phase that we are in life, uh, everybody listening, me and you, or uh, even, you know, older, you know, you never know when it's your time to pop, but, you know, it takes consistency. It takes, there's days when we get up and we're like, yo, why am I doing this? Why, yo, why, why do I need to do this? The there's point? days, there's like, you know, you know, days like, yo, we got a pod today or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's always like, you know, let's make, let's make a way. Let's make a way. Let's motivate ourselves. It's like, yo, I, I've been uh, really uh, diving into you. You were talking about all the smoke and I really dove into all the smoke. I dove into knuckleheads a little bit. Uh, I'm a big Joe Button person, a big Jamil Hill person. So I've been listening to them and just seeing what they do, uh, where they came from and, uh, how they carry conversations, how they address guests. And, you know, once, once we do get there, cause it'll, we'll, we'll get there soon, mm-hmm. you know, we'll get there soon where we, we got, we have Gilbert Arenas up here and stuff like that. It's like, yo, what, what motivates you? You know what? And even if it, there's not something you can't find to motivate you, make something, let's do it. Let's, let's get it done. Like, you know what I'm saying? So that's just the, yo. And, and it's tough because this speaks to his greatness because you're always sometimes not always in a position, but, Jordan taught us how to do it when we are at a level and we should sustain greatness and not only sustain it, but get better. So it's always like any, anything, any thing that he let entertain, any loss was always trying to like trying to put a chink in his arm, but trying to see if the God bleeds, stuff like that. Was like, bro, you're at a level. You shouldn't even be concerned with this stuff. So it's like, all right, cool, cool. You know, you got something on, you know, you got someone on me. All right, maybe I had a bad day. All right, maybe this presentation wasn't the greatest. Maybe we fell flat on our guess one. All right, but, well, we're going to come 10 times as crazy, no matter if somebody told us to go 10 times as crazy or we have to make something up and be like, yo, let's let's get it done. Let's put, you know, let's put the wheels on the road and get it done. And I think that's just a huge lesson, bro. Always motivate yourself. Always find a way. Uh, there, there's so many motivating factors, so, so. Use your imagination, get it done, and become the greatest you can be. And Jordan was an alchemist with that. It was crazy. Like, 
it, it's, it's scary how competitive he was. Even when it's like, yo, like that didn't happen. All right, I got you. You know, come in. I, I, the craziest thing is this: the scenes that got me the most in these last two episodes was anytime they will be talking about Jordan and they have Jordan in like the training room and he just be chewing gum and like side eyeing or like looking up at something, <laughs> he, you know, he were like, yo, like what's going through his mind right now. And then they'd be like, well, Jordan dropped 37 before that game or Jordan proceeded to go and lead his team to sweep in the, uh, the series or he would go. And um, when they finally beat Orlando after that, that season when, um, you know, he was coming back and then they beat Orlando the next year. And he remembered it. He scored 45. You're like, oh, 23 is not – I mean, 45 is not 23. Dude scored 45 in the last game. That's so crazy to me. And he just be in the locker room just side-eyeing, chewing his gum. It's like, what is going through this man's head? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, So that's big time for me. It's big time motivating. It's like, yo, you can just get a piece of that, a piece of that. Mm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So we harped on a little earlier, but uh, – he ended up coming back March 18, 1995. So it was a couple games left in the 94-95 um, season. And uh, he actually returned against the Pacers, which kind of foreshadows the last dance in the 1998 Eastern Conference Finals with them as well, too. So um, he felt a little nervous. He said he felt naked because he had his dad not there. And like you said, he, he kind of put together – winning with his father as well too because that was mm-hmm. that was his ultimate role model as well too so another thing as well too he you wanted to wear number 45 and to him it signified a new beginning um he started off 0 of 6 and i think they lost 103 to 96 um but then six days later they went up against the knicks and he went for 55 the historic double nickel game as well too um and then that year they said they felt like he didn't really have his legs back and whatnot because getting in shape for baseball is completely different than getting in shape for basketball as well, too, yet alone taking 18 months off was doing something um, different. So they ended up losing to the Magic um, as well, too, and then he was just motivated. It kind of reminded me of kind of like Victor Oladipo. Obviously, Victor Oladipo is no MJ, but that day that Victor yeah. Oladipo won seven games against LeBron James – his his uh his work his trainer was basically like, let me know when you want to start working out. And he was like, Yo, we working tomorrow. out tomorrow. So after, you know, MJ lost to the Magic, he was like, Yo, we about to start, you know, working out ASAP as well too. So it's kind of crazy how what you were talking about a little earlier when you were saying, uh, I think Horace Grant, one of the Magic players, was saying forty eight forty five ain't no twenty three. So he kind of took that to heart. Yeah. That's when he started wearing number 23 again as well, too, because he was like, even though I wore number 45, it just never felt like me, you know what I'm saying, which was crazy. Yeah. And that season, um, it was kind of wild because obviously, like, your full-time position is, you know, being a basketball player. But that season, August August of 1995, going 95-96 season, that's when he was also filming Space Jam as well, too. And yeah. this is some gangster shit because – they got they built him his own gym for Space Jam. Yeah. And they called it the Jordan Dome, which was crazy. But he said <laughs> he spent that whole summer constantly thinking about losing to the Magic, wanted to was 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 basically drooling at them out, you know, trying to envision him beating them. So they say he reconstructed his whole body. Um and uh, you know, they got new additions like Luke Longley, Dennis Rodman, Steve Kerr. Um, and that was crazy because 
he felt like he needed to play with up and coming players, these young cats, to truly get back into the grind of things. So he said that was probably one of the best off seasons that he has. Well, too, and he can kind of tell that he was in shape. And then once yeah. you know training camp started, that's when he had the whole, whole little infamous practice with Steve Kerr, where they were basically egging mm-hmm. each other on back and forth. And I think Steve Kerr, you know him. He, he we we see Steve Kerr nowadays, and he breaking two three clipboards a game. So he said he got mad yeah. because he's competitive. Obviously, he's not as good as MJ, but he got mad. So I think he punched or pushed MJ in the chest, and MJ like smacked him or punched him in the face. Um, yeah. And he said that was kind of like the best thing to happen ever, because from then <laughs> on, <laughs> he said that was the best. You're thing. so crazy. <laughs> he said that was the best thing to happen ever, um, because that that was a year. That's that's when we got the the vintage '95 '96 Bulls team that went on to be '72 and '10. Um, and that's when they came with their whole slogan, it don't mean a thing if you got a ring. Just because you won 72 games, your end goes and win championships. So if you don't win, then who who really cares? And that kind of just made me think of the Ghost State yeah, yeah. Warriors. Like, then y'all really, dropped, y'all really dropped the ball like that as well, too. But it was kind of yeah. crazy as well because that same season, um, he had ties with George Carl. And they're talking about how he knew him from UNC um, with Dean mm-hmm. Smith playing golf and whatnot. And I guess before the final started against the, the Seattle Supersonics, um, he saw George Carl at a restaurant with one of his boys. Well, I think with Amar Rashad. And it was crazy how yeah. George Carl, you know, everyone know him for being an asshole a little bit, didn't acknowledge him at all. So that kind of added more fuel to the fire with him. And he was like, all right, you're not going to acknowledge me. I'm just going to bust your ass. So... <laughs> They ended up winning the series 4-2, but they went up, I think, 3-0. And that's when Gary Payton came on. Gary Payton was basically saying, like, I kind of should have guarded Michael Jordan from the jump. George Carl's whole philosophy was how to kind of do with players nowadays with this a lot of switching going on and whatnot. But we're not going to necessarily put you yeah. on our best player the entire game because that's going to wear you out because we not only require you to defend at a high level, we also need you to score the basketball as well, too. So it's kind of interesting how... George Carr never wanted to do that from the jump, but from game four all the way till game six, that's when they essentially started to guard each other more. Um, they kind of Gary Payne kind of said that it kind of bothered MJ a lot as well too, and MJ had the footage looking at the iPad saying there's no chance that he was going to stop me as well too. But it was kind of crazy how the Seattle SuperSonics end up winning two games straight, which kind of makes me think like, do you think if Gary Payton guarded Jordan from game one all the way up until whenever the series would end. Do you think that would have gave Seattle Sonics a better chance of winning that series? Or do you think, I mean, it was going to go six, seven games regardless and the Chicago Bulls are going to win? Um, I think it would have been a, a bit different um, just because, you know, you first get, you know, you get that first look of uh, probably what was the most successful strategy with, kind of trying to contain Jordan yeah. with Gary Payton, Gary Payton in the glove for a reason. But it's so, so funny because, dude, the dude doesn't stop competing. Even, and they, they showed him the, the thing is, like, this is what Gary Payton said. And he laughed and he was like, I had no problem with Gary Payton. And it just, it speaks to, he's still playing mind games and still competitive now. He's still, he's not going to admit, oh, Gary, you know, Gary gave me a little bit of trouble. Now he's like, I had no problem with him. He laughed like, he was, you know, watching some kids do something stupid. You know what I'm saying? Like America's Funniest Home Videos in his hand, and um, so I could imagine what he would have internalized in the series. Like, what you don't know with MJ, it's like, you know, it's like him passing down judgment. It's like, well, 
he could have, you know, took it and he, they could have got away with Gary Payton guarding him for that first game. And then he could have messed around and heard the media. And then he could have turned up and swept them somehow, you know, because he got pissed off and just went crazy at Gary Payton. But I think that they did it in that kind of transition and the adjustment in the series. Michael didn't internalize it as much. He just kind of was still like, all right, you know, let's get this done regardless. You know, Gary Payton doing all this stuff, whatever. Let's get it done. And he got it done. But boy, like, it's it's kind of scary to say. It's like, well, if they would have started him on it, I think he would have heard media and he would have just turned up somehow because that's what he was. He was like, you know, he, he's, he's plot armor to like the 10th degree. He's like, <laughs> all right, you know. So you think Super Saiyan three is nice? Wait till you see Super Saiyan God. <laughs> wait till you see Super Saiyan. It's like, yo, how many forms do you have? <laughs> you never knew. You never knew how many forms Michael Jordan had because he just <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> real life, bro. It's like, don't piss him off. You know, you can't you can't beat Goku half enough because Goku is just gonna turn back up on you. So <laughs> Michael Jordan, I, yeah, yeah, bro. Yo, know, I. I don't see that making much of a difference just because he's so insane. Like, it's like, play the mind games. Bro, he was obsessive. And I, you know what rings a bell to me is he, uh, and two things, and then I'll, I'll, I'll close it. Uh, he he was like, yo, you know, it wasn't all sunshine and rainy. Like, when they were talking about training camp, he was like, I had to show these guys what was good. Like, I had to let them know, like, didn't mean anything. We didn't do anything last season. We didn't win a championship. So I wasn't here the whole season, but yo, we didn't get anything freaking done. So come on, let's get, we have new players. I need to let them know what this is. I need to assert my dominance. I need to let them know, like, this is not going to be easy. So really, and it, and it talks about preparation in all things, right? So, you know, we have stuff that might be coming up. We have a plan that's going to come up in six months or, you know, we have a one-year plan, two-year plan, right? And the NBA season spans about nine, 10 months almost, you know? So I know everybody says our oh, training camps prepare you for the season and then boom, you know, we got to get in playoff form and stuff like that. Michael Jordan was literally preparing them for playoff mode in training camp, <laughs> which is kind of ludicrous to me because nowadays it's like, all right, training camps were like, you know, we're going to get ready for the season. And then, you know, we'll get really in playoff form after the all-star break only, and stuff like that. Kobe you know, was doing that. Only Kobe was doing that, but he was literally, which was probably made it so hard for these other guys. You know, they come in training camp and it's like, yo, you know, we're going to have some fun. It's like lock away. We're going to, you know, training camp, go hard at practice, play dice all night, uh, you know, play cars all night, have some fun during the season, stuff like that. Yes, that was, that's what kind of happened. But at the same time, Mike was like, no, we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. So I'm going to make sure from day one, we are prepared for the last game of the finals that we play. And, that's how it all came together. So from a preparation standpoint, it's like in my life and your life and everybody's life, it's like, all right, if we're going to prepare for something, we got to prepare like it's the most intense thing on the first day so we can weather the storm and get to that goal, you know, in our in our darkest days and our lowest moments when the most adversity is coming. On top of that, uh, in episode seven, what got to me was at the end of the episode, he teared up. Dude teared up. He was like, he was like, all right, break. You know, he was like, yo, He's like, this is how much it means to me. It means this much, like the competition, the preparation. And that, seeing him break down, maybe it was a combination of that being the episode about his father and this, that, and the third. But seeing him break down just from a, you know, it didn't seem like it was about him. You know, all the headlines were always about him. But he was like, yo, like, 
how could you not like me for me trying to help you achieve a goal? And we achieved those goals freaking out of, out of, we was like in the, the Bulls like 10 seasons or something like that. Or, yeah. So, so we achieved those goals 60% of the time, which is nobody could ever say that. Nobody could ever say that. Nobody, could, I mean, maybe like Bill Russell or something like that, but, but in this era of basketball, nobody could ever say that. Like, how could you be mad at me? How could you make an assumption? How could you make a storyline about me and I'm producing results? Like, even, even if we did, didn't disagree as teammates, even if you said, oh, yo, Michael wasn't really the most personal person, but I came in and I did my job. And they, they saw him outside the court they, you know they hung out with him but on the court he did his job that was what he's supposed to do he's supposed to get into you supposed to lead you then they won championships and he teared up at the end of the episode i was like yo like that's how obsessed you have to be about your goal or obsessed you have to be about something sometimes just to get this job done so yeah man <laughs> for sure for sure and and it's crazy question for you before we <clears throat> go into a new topic in, in under a minute um yeah from jordan sitting out Basically two seasons. So obviously a full season, that's when Houston won. And then when he came back uh-huh. and wore number 45, switched to 23, Magic beat them, Houston won again. Do you think Jordan would have won, Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, that organization would have won those two championships if he stayed? Uh, obviously you have to consider health and whatnot. But barring any major injury, do you think <laughs> he just would have won those? I think so. Uh, that 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 first Orlando team was cold, though. We didn't speak about that, but that, that Orlando team, Shaq, Penny, Horace Grant, all like all of them were cold. Um, cold. I they think, were cold, but when MJ worked on his shit, they got swept. <laughs> oh yeah, they, they got swept. They got swept. So I, I have to side with the goat. I have to side with the goat. You know. Um, I think it only enhances his legacy that, you know, we saw him kind of getting burnt out and he came back uh, refreshed and ready to go again and, and sharp. Uh, so I think everything happened for a reason and it happened and it worked out in the GOAT's favor. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think he wins it. Just the way he dealt with the league, the way that, uh, you know, we, we gave a lot of shit to Jerry Krause, but he was really doing a damn good job with that. Nah, hell, of, hell, of a hell of a GM. He, even the team that Michael came back to, they were ready to go. So, um, and I, yeah, yeah. But all they needed was that one piece, and thank God that one piece was Michael Jordan. You know how convenient. But yo, I think he would. I would think he would have won those championships for sure. And then in under a minute, tell tell me about that defining moment, the last, the very last scene. Like what went through your head when you saw MJ winning on Father's Day, which was kind of a coincidence. Game six against the Seattle yeah. Supersonics and him just crying. Like, how, what went through your mind when you saw that? Um, it was surreal to me. I didn't have too many thoughts. It was just kind of like it was shocking just to see him on the ground crying. You know, see people trying to kind of like console him and stuff like that. But um, I think it's something you try to achieve. I I looked at it and for me, it felt like I was at the bottom of the valley looking at the mountaintop in a way. Cause it's like, I've achieved some stuff in my life. I've achieved goals, but just that kind of like adversity and stuff to been through. I think I will be faced with those type of challenges when I, you know, find ultimate purpose and it's down the third, but just looking up and seeing that it was like, yo, like that's, 
crazy. That's what it feels like just to put everything into something and achieve it. And, you know, you, the emotions and stuff, it, it comes to a boil and it's like, yo, that's, that's crazy. So it, it was like me looking up at the mountaintop surrounded in clouds, like, all right, I got to get there. We'll get there. So that, that's how it felt. For sure. For sure. For sure. Um, just want to give a shout out out in silver, basically the headline saying Adam Silver prepares NBA players for challenge ahead. Uh, so NBA commissioner Adam Silver prepared players for a potentially grim landscape amid the coronavirus pandemic, suggesting there are no guarantees when fans could fully return to NBA arenas next season. Silver said that 40% of the league's revenue comes from money built around game nights and arenas. In quotes, this could turn out to be the single greatest challenge of all our lives, Silver told the, the players. ESPN acquired an audio replay of the National Basketball Players Association call, which included executive director Michelle Roberts, MBPA president Chris Paul, and several players asking questions of the commissioner in an hour-long session. The tone was respectful, but Silver was asked some hard questions about safety issues, return to play ideas, how future seasons will be affected, and the financial realities of future salary caps and basketball-related income. Silver said no decision on returning to play this season needed to be made in May, nor immediately into the start of June as well, too. Um, And then also they say... Silver said returning to play the season at one or two potential sites, including Orlando and Las Vegas, made the most sense. Um, there's no point in adding risk for flying all of you city to city if there's not going to be fans. Silver said we think it will be safer to be in a single location or two locations to start. Also said the goal isn't to have you go to a market for two months to sit in a hotel room. Um, then they also said here... The CBA was not built for extended pandemics as well, too. So, I mean, in the gist of everything as well, too, I feel like the biggest takeaway from this is this is just something new that we're going to just have to figure out and we're going to have to take it day by day. Um, And, I mean, I think they're doing everything they can to try to figure out things, um, but we really don't know. And then, like I said, too, if fans aren't going to be in attendance – and that's 40% of the revenue from game nights, maybe that does mess up the salary cap. Maybe players do have to take a pay cut. So that kind of sucks as well, too. Um, And I'm really trying to figure out, like, what's going to happen moving forward as well, too, because that's a huge thing. And my whole thing was, I know the NFL season is about to start and whatnot, but obviously we have this system intact with, you know, being six feet away from each other. Do you think there would be something where – Obviously, let's say, for example, there's 18,000 people in an average arena. Do you think they would space people out and you like have to buy tickets in accordance? Do you think they would go over with the option with yeah. that to not fully? Because, I mean, I mean it's, it sucks not having fans itself, too. But I feel like if you can, in a way, practice social distancing and just have at least half or one-fourth or an eighth of fans there, I think that's better than nothing. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I think you have to sacrifice. So that's kind of that. Cool. Um, I think even even bigger is that. All right, you know the league does come back. They do package the games in a certain way, and they're shown without fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is. Might sound like a dumb question because like, oh, everybody wants to be see the NBA, but like 
what is going to be the incentives for the fans to return to the games if they do package it, you know, without the fans? And and, and, and there are going to be diehard fans there. People are going to be ready to come back to the league and stuff like that. But I feel like there's going to be a portion of fans that are going to be like, you know what, it's safer no matter what. Let us stay here. Let us, you know, they gave us an experience and we're going to watch it. But why do I need to go back to the games, you know? Why do I need to be there live and in person? And they're going to at least going to have to figure that out coming down the stretch too. It's like, how do I promote the, the, the in-person experience again? How do I, and maybe that's the individual markets, but the league within itself is going to have to come together and, and like make a real push to get people all back in those seats. Once it is determined that God willingly, we can go back into saying, oh, you know, I can be closer than six feet away from people. So I think that's going to be a challenge within itself. I think the, uh, the two sites will be good, you know, if they really want to get it back rolling at a certain point or maybe have summer league or whatever like that. And then, you know, figure out the whole other main season at a different time. But I think there's, there's more obstacles to come than just getting back on the regular season court. You know, yeah. we're thinking about revenue. We're thinking about salaries. We're thinking there has to be like a, a, a war, not war, time, but I'm saying war time because it's, it's a tough time, but it has to be like a hard time plan. All right. So once we get through this, then we can figure this out. But we have to, you know, be figure out how to take care of people, be safe and fund ourselves during this specific time. Because if not, then we're not going to have a time post that. For sure. Know? For sure. And then um, a couple, obviously they've been easing, um, the quarantine lifestyle with everything as well to certain states as well. So um, I think they say here, I think the Cavs opened up their facility and then the Portland Trail Players opened up their facility. Um, so basically it says Kevin Love made the 20 minute drive from his home to Cleveland Cavaliers practice facility Friday. Um, basically it said blah, 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 blah. So basically he, he got in the facility and he basically said it was the longest I've ever gone without shooting basketball. Love to ESPN on Friday. So yeah. I didn't care. I just wanted to get some shots up. And then it says the Cavaliers became one of the one of the first teams in the NBA to reopen their practice facility for voluntary individual workouts. Nearly two months since the league went on a hiatus in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Friday was the first day the league allowed it so long as the team's local government had loosened its shelter at home guidelines and the team was following protocol. The Portland Trailblazers also opened their doors for individual workouts Friday, and nine of the 11 players currently in Portland area rotated throughout court time. Um, and then it said, Love 31 said when he arrived at Cleveland Clinic Courts in Independence, Ohio, he was screened before entering the facility throughout a designated side entrance. Asked us a few questions. He said how we're feeling, if anybody had been sick in the house, if we've been sick, if we've been basically adhered to all the guidelines that are put in place, not only by the NBA, but state to state. Um, and then they also said the five-time All-Star also had his temperature taken a log. Any player who was showing a fever would not be given access. And then once inside, each player had his own half court to work out on an assistant coach, one-on-one with assistant coach wearing a mask and gloves accompanying him to pass and rebound. Then um, another That's quote crazy. was saying, latex gloves make your hands sweat more than I ever knew. One Cavs coach told ESPN a text message. Definitely took a little to get used to with the gloves, but definitely the safest technique right now if you want to think about it as well, too. So um, I, I like the steps that they're taking. You know, at the end of the day, you can't live in fear forever. And 
you know, life has mm-hmm. to go on as well too. And people have to eventually, which sucks, um, get back out into the world as far as like, you know, being in the job market and, and whatnot as well too. So I feel like if they're taking the proper steps, like we just said here, they're using lace as glove, people coming in at certain time slots, doing a one-on-one workout, you know, one, one half of the court, the other person on the other half of the court. If you're doing that, um, then I think you're going in the right direction as well too. So um, anything else you want to add to that? Um, no, other than this is, this is a, this is a hot take, okay. but I think we have to be very wary and very, uh, um, vigilant to what we're intaking on the media. And I think we should protect ourselves as a community, as, you know, good neighbors to each other, but we very much need to hold our selves accountable for what we intake the news and be also very realistic on, on certain stuff now. And we need to hold people accountable, you know, uh, for one, we need to, um, you know, I think, I think it's kind of, yes, people are, you know, passing away over this virus, but we need to, you know, demand certain answers because I think at this point it's been so far fetched. It's like, I'm, I'll ask you and then I'll leave it at that. But it's like, what are the symptoms of the coronavirus? Man, and you don't, you don't answer. It's a, it's a, it's a rhetorical okay. question, but think about it. Think about it. Think about where we came from and where we are now, and the precautions that we're taking and everything like that. But it's just like, wait, what are we protecting <laughs> ourselves from again? And maybe, maybe I'll get grilled about this and stuff like that. But what exactly are the precautions, and what is the nature of this thing? What do I exactly need to do? And if not, or if so why is there a, a mass fear and hysteria tactic associated with this thing? And I know it's, it's taking people's lives, but why is it being portrayed a certain way in the media? That's all I'm going to say about that. But we need to protect each other for one, to be very vigilant and be very um, cautious about what we intake and the information we yeah. believe. Last thing I want to talk about, uh, we can wrap it up, literally give a minute spill, two minutes spill, and we're done here. Um Zion Williamson made headlines the other day, um, and basically the title is Zion Williamson asked to admit parents receive money gifts from Duke, Nike, and Adidas. Attorneys represented Zion Williamson, former marketing representative, and her company have asked the New Orleans Pelicans star to admit that his mother and stepfather demanded and received gifts, money, and other benefits from previous, no, from, uh, let me see. Money benefits from, from persons acting on behalf of Adidas and Nikes and also from people associated with Duke to influence him to sign with the Blue Devils and wear Nike um, or Adidas products. Williamson, who played one season at Duke before becoming the number one pick in the 2019 NBA draft, sued Gina Ford and Prime Sports in June in an attempt to terminate his marketing agreement with her company. Williamson's attorney claimed the contract was in violation of North Carolina's Uniform Athletes Agents Act because Prime Sports is not certified by the NBA Players Association nor a registered athlete agent in North Carolina or Florida. Um, Ford and Prime Sports Marketing sued Williamson Creative Artist Agency and two of his employees in Florida court the same month alleging the CAA interfered with Prime Sports deal with Williamson and that he breached their five-year contract. The lawsuit seeks $100 million in punitive damages um, as well, too. And they're basically going on about uh, what exactly they want um, the Williamsons to admit as well, too. But any thoughts on uh, any on any of that? 
Kenny Lofton, you feel on my pace. They only care about it when he's still on the base. It's like um Wilt, but still I'm fucking them all. They only care about it when I'm dunking a ball. Uh, shout out Cole. But uh, my biggest thing, and I almost tweeted about this yesterday, but who are rich? And I won't go into color, but who are Majorities. rich people to to to, to, to rich majorities <laughs> to, to 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 cop to comments and have an opinion about money that a young black brother that has never really touched money is making and it, and I won't even make it about that but this sounds like somebody is just pissy that they didn't get paid or whatever like that one the NCAA is scrambling because they're scrambling because of it's a system that has already been flawed that they don't want the play the kids to make money, but the top players are going to make money regardless because these top shoe companies that are funding your leagues are making money already. And two, one, Duke's not going down. Duke's the creme de la creme of college basketball. The NCAA could not punish Duke because they're already being punished because kids are bypassing the NCAA right now. So, so you when you punish somebody, you're going to punish yourself for doing wrong. Wrong makes wrong. You know what I'm saying? Two right, two two right, two left don't make a right. You know what I'm saying? Two wrong make a right, and it just it it it, it blows my mind. It baffles me. And these whistleblowers that you know are clearly in the depths and in the mist and in and just as hands just as dirty for 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 people. You know they saying always oh, cheating whatever like that. No, somebody's trying to make sure their family's good. That's all. Basketball is basketball at the end of the day. As long as he's not taking performance enhancing drugs, whatever that. He's a freak nature athlete. He's going to get paid regardless. At some point, or getting paid up the line, and it's been happening for years and years and years with the top players and these shoe companies and these schools already know about it, bro. Like, shut up. Like, shut up. <laughs> like, that's all. Like, I'm sorry you didn't get paid. You Maybe attacking a certain way, but you whistleblowing and saying, oh, he demanded that being a snitch. Bro, like, you're, you're dismissed. We off that. that. Your, your hands are already dirty. You know what I'm saying? It's the pot calling the head kettle black, dude. And I don't blame the kids for taking money. I take I take the million dollars. <laughs> somebody like, yo, you know what? You can go to VCU and you can make a million dollars when you're going to VCU. What you trying to do? All right, but <laughs> like, and I'm gonna go to the league the next the next year, and y'all can talk about it later. But I'm gone. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's all I got, bro. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was episode 79 of the Caesar Show. Any last remarks before I give the full exit? Um, nah, to all the moms out there, we love you. If you ever fed me, we love you. Uh, shout out to all my people out there doing very big things. Um, you know, graduating seniors that have persevered through this tough time. Um, everybody hold your head, uh, be very vigilant and, um, you know, thanks for yourselves. Other than that, man, shout out to the moms episode 78, 79, 79. We almost there, baby. hundred. When we get to that hundred episode how you gonna act we got 20 episodes and 100 you gotta be something crazy but that's here nor there but yo episode 79 man thank you guys for listening yes sir ladies and gentlemen you heard traded xxiv make sure to subscribe rate comment share on all platforms the caesar show sir caesar's and traded xxiv we out